Well, good morning. It's good to have a full house here this morning. We want to welcome the house of God to this meeting place this morning. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Holy Father, we come to you this morning, and we uh, feel our need of you. And Lord, we know that this meeting will all be in vain unless you come and meet with us. So Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Would you clear our minds and hearts, sanctify us, Lord? We know that you said you will not hear us if we regard iniquity in our hearts. Would you remove all iniquity from us? Make us worthy to come before you this morning, and make us worthy to have, you, to have your presence with us here this morning. Pray. We pray that you would protect us against any words we may speak that could be mistaken, Father, that would not bring glory and honor to your name. We desire to be amongst those upon this earth that make known to those around us the manifold wisdom of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For an opening text this morning... I'd like to open up to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm just going to read a couple verses there at the, I'm sorry, not Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 7, just going to read a few verses there at the end of Matthew chapter 27, <clears throat> beginning in verse 24, Matthew 7, 24, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking, and he says, therefore... Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I was thinking about this uh, parable, or whatever you want to call it, there. I was thinking about that this past week, and <clears throat> the question has been asked before, was the foolish man necessarily lost? And to some that may sound like, well, the question itself may sound a little foolish. But uh, I think it may benefit us a little bit to think about that actually this morning. <clears throat> I know in 1 Corinthians 3, the Bible speaks of a man whose work was destroyed. It did not stand the test. Yet he himself was saved. Kind of brings to mind this foolish man where his work was destroyed. Yet he himself was saved. We often see in the scriptures uh, a couple types of people that are contrasted with each other. We, we read about the wise 
And we read about the foolish. We read about the righteous. And we read about the wicked. And oftentimes we put those together as just two types of people. We kind of put it together as the wise righteous and the, and the foolish wicked. But I guess I would raise the question this morning, are there actually four types of people? Is it possible <clears throat> that in that overly simplistic view of the wise, righteous, and foolish, wicked, we could actually misunderstand or even just miss altogether one of Satan's most successful snares or one of the main way he works with God's people? I think of a man like Lot in Genesis chapter 13 when he pitched his tent toward Sodom. When I think of Lot... I think of a foolish man. <clears throat> and yet 2 Peter 2 does not hesitate to call him both a just man and a righteous man right. with a righteous soul. Is it possible that Lot was a foolish, righteous man? I also call attention to the words of Jesus in Luke 16. It speaks in that passage of the children of the world, that's the wicked, being wiser in their generation than the children of light, that's the righteous. Is it possible to have wise, wicked, and foolish, righteous? <laughs> kind of messes with the mind a little bit. <laughs> you know, Lot isn't the only example. I also thought of David, too. I think David made some, was a righteous man. But he made some very foolish decisions, some very serious mistakes. And I think it messes with our heads a little bit to think of it like that because most of us were raised in a Christian home where from little up we have been taught the, a strong sense of morality. And we like to place everything in, in one of two categories. Everything is either right or wrong, good or evil, true or false. And while I do believe in that little proverb, in that little proverb that we hear sometimes, that upon everything you do, God is either smiling or frowning. You know, we don't believe in awe morality. That means nothing is moral, there's no right or wrong. There is truth. And truth is not relative. Truth is not my reality against your reality. It's God's law against sin. Truth is truth. But I do believe that it is entirely possible for a righteous, saved man to make foolish choices even to the point of affecting the integrity of whatever house he's building. And if you think about it just for a minute, really that's kind of what drift is. We talk about drift sometimes. And to illustrate that, I'd like to borrow an illustration that I remember from being a boy back at Cleveland. There's a preacher who used this. I won't give his name, but he's sitting right over there. And he was actually talking about music. And he had a clear line right here. There was a clear line, and on this side of the line was good. He was talking about music. This side of the line is good music, and this side of the line is bad music. And when you put it like that, it gets a little confusing, because then you have music that's 
really, I mean, you can't put it in the bad category, but, I mean, it's probably not the best, but it's kind of harmless, right? So it's, it's like, you know, where's that fit in, right? And uh, he said, really, a more accurate picture is good is over here, and bad is over here, and in between is a whole bunch of lines. You remember using that? I used that this morning because I think that applies to a much broader subject scope than just music. And when we talk about making choices, wise or foolish, we're really talking about everything in here, right here. That's what we're talking about. I want to keep bringing it back to that because foolish choices happen in that in-between right there. That's where the foolish choices happen. And the battle is always at the line. If you, hold, if you, if you take your stand right here, all of hell is going to break loose on that line right there. And the moment you, you know, move that and come over here, the battle's going to move to that line. And on and on and on it goes. And uh, <clears throat> I want to just mention here, there is a common question that is used when we're dealing with issues in that in-between. And this question, I believe, is the prelude to the jettison of every good stand the church has taken. If you're not sure what jettison means, I wanted to use that word because it was very fitting. It simply means to cast off as unwanted or cumbersome. And that question is, is it salvific or is it a salvation issue? And we seem sometimes embarrassed or, or wanting to shrink away from taking a clear stand unless we are convinced that we will immediately jeopardize our, etern our eternal welfare by change or acceptance of whatever the issue is. And that all happens in here. <clears throat> I believe that's one reason why drifting churches never find a convenient stopping place is because they think, they move along from one to another, thinking that sooner or later they will come to an obvious place, an obvious stopping place where that side of the line is bad. And they never find a good place to stop because I believe that line doesn't exist. And so they keep moving because they never find that place. And so they move from there to there in little increments of change and concessions, thinking all the time they're going to come to an obvious stopping place and they never find it. And we, who are still back here, look at them up there and go, how did they ever get there? I'm going to, some of you know Jeff Jarman. I'm going to throw Jeff Jarman on you because I like what he said years ago in a sermon. He said, we asked the question, how did they ever get there? He says, look at their tracks. Look at their tracks. If you look at their tracks, it will show you how they got there. And if your footprints run parallel to their tracks, you will get there too in exactly the same way. That's a promise. It's a guarantee. I'd like to quote something Jerry Mahore said too. 
on this when he was talking about this subject, but it happens very, very slowly. He said, Satan has something that you and I don't have. He's got time. He's got lots of it. And he's willing to take it. He's actually willing to work multi-generationally. I remember Jerry saying, he's okay to just get you to go from, I should use this, to get you to go from here to here, and then he'll start with your children right there and get them to go from there. He, he's got time. He'll work with you. And them. <clears throat> thought of another thing that Jeff Jarman said one time. So one thing we have to keep in mind is that every choice we make narrows down the selection for the next choice, which in turn narrows down the selection for the next choice, and so on until the power of choice is taken right out of our hands because the final choice is made by all our antecedent choices, and all that's left to us is consequence. And that all happens in that in-between section right there. Now, we wanted to title this little topic this morning, The Error of Foolishness. So there is an error here. We can say that uh, it is possible for a good, just, righteous man to make foolish choices without necessarily jeopardizing his eternal soul. But there is a trap of foolishness. And this subject would be incomplete without looking at that trap. Uh, trap. It's a big trap. And I think we can find that trap probably the most clearly illustrated in Matthew 25. You don't have to turn there. I don't think I'm going to read it. But in the parable of the ten virgins, and I, I like this parable because there's really a lot to think about in this parable. One thing I've noticed in this parable before is that it's ten virgins. Ten virgins. It's not five virgins and five harlots. These were not wicked people. These are all pure, untouched, probably Christians, really. I mean, this isn't wicked people. It's not five virgins and five harlots. They were all ten harlots. The second thing you'll notice in this parable is that the five foolish virgins lost something that they at one time possessed. God doesn't say there in verse, uh, I believe it's 12, God doesn't tell them, I never knew you. He just says, I don't know you. They lost something that they at one time possessed. Another thing I've noticed in here before is in answer to the people who think that, or teach that the righteous in the end times will be raptured, and then those left behind will have an opportunity to repent. You don't find that in here. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. I think there's something in that anyway. Maybe not. But the lesson that applies to us this morning, to our subject this morning, is that these five foolish virgins were lost. They ended up being lost. I want you to know this morning that there is somewhere in here, there is a mysterious line where foolishness becomes 
lostness. We don't know where that line is. That line has never been found. I, I believe that God has decreed that that line will never be found. We aren't to know where that line is. There is a poem that I've always liked that talks about that line, and since it fit, I thought I would give it here. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. That means you don't see it coming. It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. It's a a spiritual death. It's, It's not a death to your body. The conscience may be still at ease, the spirit light and gay. That which is pleasing still may please and care be thrust away. But on that forehead God hath set, indelibly a mark, unseen by man, for man as yet is blind and in the dark. And yet the doomed man's path below may bloom as Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know or feel that he is doomed. He knows he feels that all is well, and every fear be calmed. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell, not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is that mysterious born? That's a line. Where is that mysterious born by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent. And harden not your heart. One thing that the wise man in Matthew chapter 7 and the wise virgins in Matthew 25 had in common is that they acted in preparation for the worst case scenario. The wise man took the time to consider the winds and the floods and the storms and he built his house accordingly. The the wise virgins took the time to consider that maybe the bridegroom would tarry just a little longer than they thought. And the midnight would drag on a little bit longer than they thought and prepared just in case. They acted upon the worst case scenario. The foolish did not. And I have to wonder. And some of the things we face these days, when our decisions are based on things like, we mentioned, is it really a salvation issue rather than, is it wise? Or when we say things like, well, I know it can, but does it have to? (laughs) You know, that's the mentality of the foolish, not of the wise. 
That's not making preparations for the worst case scenario. The foolish could have said that, well, yeah, the bridegroom could tarry a little longer than we thought, but he probably won't. Doesn't have to. The storms could rise and beat upon my house, but they don't have to. <laughs> Are we making preparations for the worst case scenario? Will our house stand? One thing that I do not want to do is I do not want to err on the side of foolishness. Its price is too high, and it is a price that I do not want to pay. It is a price that I do not want you to pay. Some of these things get come to life when you, when you study church history sometimes, and I, I enjoy reading how how different things have happened in the past, and I, I when thinking of this, I had to think of some of the Mennonites in the fifty in the fifties and sixties that accepted certain things compared to those who did not. The one house, in spite of many faults, has stood, I believe. The other, in spite of very spiritual talk, has fallen. And you can say, well, isn't that a little bit hard? Well, I mean, uncovered women, pastors, homosexual members, it's fallen. <laughs> Look at their tracks. That's how they got there. I had to think of us fathers, especially. We carry a big responsibility for the house that we are building. What have we built? You know, we may not all arrive at exactly the same application on all things, and, and that's okay. But we must take this principle to heart and make it practical. The midnight, if not upon us, is coming. And the storms, winds of gale force, the floods will rise. And if they're not blowing and rising as we stand here, they're coming. The question is, when they beat upon our house, will our house stand? I trust you will feel the liberty, if anything has been said amiss, to set it straight. Our desire is that God would be true and every man a liar, and that includes myself. But don't miss the burden of our hearts this morning. In every decision we make, Let's not ask, well, will this immediately jeopardize my salvation? Let's ask, is this building a house that will stand the storms of life? Is this building a house that will stand? Be wise. Be wise.